animates your mind. A tear of petrol is in your eye. You're welcome, Neil. is not the media this is hell i'm your bitter blind broke gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz producing today alex jerry we have some sad breaking news a past guest on our show a writer an author an essayist one of the founding members of monty python terry jones has passed away he has died he's passed on this Jones is no more. He has ceased to be. He's expired and gone to meet his maker. He's a stiff, bereft of life. He rests in peace. His metabolic processes are now history. He's off the twig. He's kicked the bucket. He's shuffled off his mortal coil, run down the curtain, and joined the bleeding choir invisible. This is an ex-Terry Jones. Terry first appeared on our show in March of 2005 to talk about his book, Terry Jones' War on the War on Terror. And I believe we've shared the, the Terry Jones interviews on Patreon in the past at patreon.com slash thisishell. But if we have not, we will in the very near future. And yes, I dis did ask uh, Terry Jones a question from hell, which was, uh, what's it like being the only member of Monty Python nobody's ever heard of? So I have to take that to my grave. Today on This Is Hell, Alex is revealing this week's question from hell for you, our listening audience, and what you can win if you have our favorite answer. We'll give an update on the recriminalization of marijuana here in Illinois that may soon be sweeping the nation. There will be listener feedback with your comments about recent guests and some of you want to work on the show. Our guest says President Trump causes cancer. We'll share what you are writing when you rate This Is Hell from zero to five stars on our Facebook page. And we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's This Is Hell, which, like today's show, will stream live at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com and podcast shortly after at the same place. Yes, President Donald J. Trump, the Trump administration, the Republican Party, as well as the chemical industry and Koch brothers who support them. Trump, the GOP, and the Kochs want to legalize poisons that cause cancer in children, that kill kids, unleashing them on the environment. And they don't care, apparently, if it kills kids. The chemical industry and its lobby are so dumb or thoughtless or deadly, take your pick, that they believe people can not only survive contact with small amounts of carcinogenic toxins leading to happy, healthy lives, but those small amounts of cancer-causing chemicals are actually good for you, probably. 
But rich Republicans and people like the Trumps and Kochs won't have to worry about those new cancer-causing chemicals being where they live. The toxins will instead be dumped on communities of color, and they're not so well off. In the process, they hope to overturn all research based on private medical records, which does not sound like a good thing. I mean, what the hell happens when suddenly you go to your doctor for your annual examination and they say, yeah, I tell you how you are doing. But now that all research based on medical history is no longer considered science, all I can say is your humors seem to be out of line and I'm prescribing a good bleeding and suck on this piece of lead every day at moonrise. This morning, if our phones work, we promise to have the return of award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner, who posted the Intercept article, The War on the War on Cancer, Trump's gutting of toxics regulations will mean higher profits for polluters and higher cancer rates for the American people. You may remember that we were supposed to have Sharon on the show last Thursday. We had an issue with our phone lines here, but it has been addressed. Sharon covers health and the environment for The Intercept. This is Sharon's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. Sharon was on the show most recently last September when we spoke with her about her Intercept story, Waste Only, How the Plastics Industry is fighting to keep polluting the world. Find all of our conversations with Sharon at thisishell.com, and you can follow Sharon on Twitter at Fast Learner. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, yesterday we could not get in touch with our scheduled guest sociologist, Kari Marie Norgard, author of Salmon and Acorns, Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature, and Social Action, the show prior to Mondays. Last Thursdays, we were unable to get our guest online. Luckily, Sharon Lerner has agreed to reschedule for today's show to talk about Trump's war on the war on cancer, and apparently Kari has rescheduled for tomorrow. But considering our recent setbacks, Alex, how would you rate your confidence that we will be talking to Sharon Lerner in a few minutes? 90, 99% that we will be able to talk to each other. Oh, sweet. How will it sound? Yeah. Don't ask me. No, I, I think it's fine. Uh, I've been having nightmares about this, and I've been in the studio all week trying to figure out what the problem was and get everything back up and track. Uh, I've been doing a bunch of test calls. Everything's worked so far. So uh, I was having nightmares about this on the morning of Martin Luther King Day. So I actually woke up at 5.02 in the morning in a hotel in Bloomington, Illinois, worrying about our phone lines. Alex, let's get to something far more fun to talk about. What's this week's question from hell? This question from hell is, what are you wearing to Davos this year? What are you wearing to Davos this year? <laughs> this year, see, in years past, it would be a different outfit. But this year, what are you wearing to Davos? Well, I'm hoping I don't get in trouble for the image that I uh, posted to accompany the whole thing. Oh, don't tell anybody what it is. Draw people uh, to our Facebook page. And what do you want to give away as a gift? Uh, give out a This Is Hell t-shirt for right. next year's conference. <laughs> exactly. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Al again. What are you wearing to Davos? What are you wearing to Davos this year? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to me or Alex at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Again, that makes this week's question, what are you wearing to Davos this year, tune in following our upcoming guest to hear more of your answers to or hear uh, some of your answers to this week's question from hell and keep listening as we will name this week's winner on Thursday. Before we get to listener feedback, a friend of mine and a supporter of This Is Hell, a regular at This Is Hell office hours, our weekly meet and greet that's more a think and drink, now on Fridays, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, here in Chicago's little India neighborhood. 
Uh, the listener, Wally, posted an article on uh, my own Facebook timeline. And uh, it's on something that we've been talking about this show, something we've been calling the recriminalization of marijuana in Illinois. The Chicago Reader's story that Wally shared dated Monday is by Larry Mishkin, who the reader describes as a local attorney who specializes in cannabis law in association with the Hoban, H-O-B-A-N, law group based in Denver. Larry backs up pretty much everything we've been saying about how weed ain't legal in Illinois, nor can you enjoy it recreationally. So saying that this is a recreational marijuana law or that marijuana is legal in Illinois is completely misleading, false, inaccurate, whatever you want to call it. I replied to Wally sharing the story. What have, I been, what have I been telling you? Weed is not legal in Illinois. Recreational marijuana is not legal. Only legal weed is legal. Legalizing it illegalized most of it. Denver attorney Larry writes, Illinois' adult use cannabis legislation doesn't mean weed will be legal in Illinois. Users must be 21 or older. Products must be purchased at a licensed dispensary, transported home in their unopened original packaging, and consumed in private homes out of sight of neighbors. If you smoke or consume cannabis outside of those restrictions, you can still face arrest and criminal charges. Without saying it, Larry is explaining exactly why we need to decriminalize it now that weed has been unfortunately legalized. Sadly, the otherwise informative Larry ends with this throwaway line, and I really wish they had thrown it away so we wouldn't have to suffer through this meh, whatever this is. Larry ends with, enjoy this long-awaited opportunity to smoke or consume your favorite cannabis, THC, or infused products, and appreciate just how far we've come as a society. Yes, Larry, I'm really enjoying this long-awaited opportunity to smoke weed in my house outside the view of my neighbors. Yeah, this is something I've been really waiting for a long time. I've never had this opportunity before in my life. What a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to be able to smoke weed in my home outside the view of my neighbors. Society really has come far away, I think. I, I'm not too sure because I can't see what my neighbors are doing right now. Update two, uh, but what I was seeing, something I actually was seeing other than my neighbors hiding from my view of their smoking pot. Dealers suddenly back out on the block between here and my house for the first time in like 10 years since the cops busted the last open-air drug market in the neighborhood. I'm no longer seeing them. They showed up for a couple of weeks right after this whole process came about, right after New Year's Day, and I was told by people in the weed industry that rejuvenated open-air market wouldn't last long, and it happened everywhere. Weed goes legal because nobody ever really understands how illegal weed still is when it does become legal. As developments continue, count on This Is Hell to give you all your weeds still legal in Illinois, still illegal in Illinois news. And you can screw Governor Pritzker. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible, horrible business model. This is hell. So we'll get to some more listener feedback in a bit. I really want to get to our next guest who is really kindly rescheduled with us. Let me put this over here. Coming up, Trump administration policies deregulating the chemical industry will cause cancer, cancer that will kill children. We'll also have listener feedback. What's up? What's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell and how our listeners are rating This Is Hell on Facebook. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show 
Alex Jerry news that scares the news. This is hell. The chemical industry is getting its way. It's deregulating cancer-causing chemical after cancer-causing chemical. And they're doing it in a way that it may take a very long time and a lot of hard work to undo. Here to help us understand a policy of the Trump administration that will actually kill kids here in the United States. We are very honored to have the return of award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner, who posted the Intercept story, The War on the War on Cancer. Trump's gutting of toxics regulations will mean higher profits for polluters and higher cancer rates for the American people. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Sharon. Thanks for having me. Hello. Hello. Oh, my God, it works. Holy cow, our <laughs> phones are actually working. Thank you so much yep. for rescheduling with us, Sharon, because this is really great work, as your work always is. You can find all of our conversations with Sharon at thisishell.com, and you can follow Sharon on fast at, on Twitter at FastLearner. That's L-E-R-N-E-R. -E as we were trying to start our conversation last time, you start your story by writing about a mother of three, Angela Ramirez, and how at only 38 years old, she was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer you explained that Angela is a parent educator in a local public school in Lake County, Illinois, near here where we are right here, that she had to undergo a double mastectomy, chemotherapy, radiation, five follow-up surgeries. You add eight years since the diagnosis. Her family is still recovering because of complications. Ramirez is awaiting several more reconstructive surgeries. Her daughter, Ada, now 15, has recently diagnosed with PTSD, in part, Ramirez thinks, because she spent much of her childhood worrying about her mother. And her husband is working 80 hours a week just to cover medical expenses. Ramirez used to think of her ordeal as random bad luck, an inexplicable series of genetic mutations that just happened to derail her life. But what she found out, that there was a chemical being emitted near her home from two different facilities, a chemical called ethylene oxide. Why was this cancer caused? chemical being emitted in the first place? Why did it need to be used in the first place? So ethylene oxide is used for a bunch of things, uh, often for its sterilizing metal, medical equipment and in the production of other chemicals and then cosmetics. Um, and I brought up this chemical. Uh, it's actually something I have been reporting on for a while. Um, and that's because it's one of the chemicals um, whose assessment um, by the government, their judgment of, of how dangerous it is, has been in contention during this administration. So um, ethylene oxide was uh, assessed by, by the EPA in 2016. And that means um, that's when their report came out. But actually, the EPA had been studying it for years, for more than 10 years, going. And it's like this incredibly involved process. It involves getting all the scientific research on it and deciding what of it is credible and how much weight to give each piece and, and looking at animal research and what we know about how the chemical affects people. Anyway, years and years and years of this. And they came up with this report and. 2016 that found that it was it's a carcinogen and it's way more dangerous than had previously been thought and so what happens with this uh is that when this division of the epa comes up with its assessment comes up with this number and says this is you know basically what how dangerous we think it is it quantifies the risk and then another part of the epa takes that number 
And they look at how much of this chemical is emitted from industrial facilities all over the country, and it kind of gives an estimate of the risk in the areas around these facilities all over the country. So you can look up, based on your census tract, what your estimated cancer risk is based on the emissions from industrial emissions. And, and so once the number was changed by the CPA report, uh, a bunch of con uh, census tracts around the country found that they had elevated cancer risk due to, to this chemical. And I had reported on that previously. Um, this piece, I looked at sort of what happened after that, which is that the industry that makes ethylene oxide, um, and there are many companies, the two facilities near um, Angela Ramirez were one by this uh, place called Medline, another called Vantage. The biggest uh, producer of this chemical is Dow Chemical. Anyway, uh, the industry that makes it basically challenged the number. They went back and said, hey, this isn't right. Uh, we don't like this, you know, and, and they hired scientists who went back in there and, and disputed all the various ways that they came up with with this number. And and so this is happening not just for this chemical, but for others, as I go into in this very long piece. But I wanted to focus on ethylene oxide because, because they've really uh, been successful in industry in changing um, the number and, and changing how risk is me measured, which of course doesn't mean that it becomes any less risky. It means that it looks less risky on paper and companies that admit it are allowed to get away with it. Ramirez became aware of her cancer risk. She went and did exactly what you were talking about, and it's something that most people may not know, and that is that you can actually find out what your risk is of cancer through EPA emissions reports. How aware do you think the public is of the environmental risk that they, the, the environmental risk of cancer that is posed to them at this very moment? How aware are people of? I mean, I, I would say not very aware, but perhaps a little more aware after, so in February of last year, I did this piece where, um, and it was it was the piece also about, partly about ethylene oxide, but also about kind of uh, cancer risk from, from chemicals. And what we did in that piece, I think has been, helpful to some of the people uh, at risk around the country. And we found that um, 109 census tracts around the country have a cancer risk that's uh, officially in EPA's danger zone, which means that 100 cancers for every million people. And I, you know, won't get to, I, won't, I don't want to get too into the weeds here, as you can in the subject, but it, officially, according to the law, the problem, uh, any, any number over one was supposed to be a problem. In fact, um, nationwide, the average uh, risk of cancer from air pollution is now 32. So the EPA has this number where officially it's a problem uh, if the number is over 100. There are 109 census tracts around the country where, where they have officially elevated risk. Some of them are in Lake County, where uh, Angela Ramirez lives. Um, some of them are uh, also in Illinois, uh, 
near where there is a another facility that was closed in DuPage, do you say DuPage, DuPage, I don't know, uh, County, Willowbrook, Illinois. Uh, there are quite a number in Louisiana, uh, a big number uh, in Texas. Um, and if people want to check out that list, which I think is, is just really useful, uh, the story to look up would be um, a tale of two toxic cities. And we have this graphic where, where it kind of lists all the hotspots. And that's why we have Sharon on on a semi-regular basis, because her work is so fantastic. And this was a huge local news story here in Chicago. Uh, but we stream live in our podcast all over the world, so not all of our listeners will be as familiar as locals are. The name of a facility here in Chicago that was emitting this cancer-causing chemical was Sterigenics. And the most recent news on the facility is that six teachers who taught at uh, Hinsdale South High School are suing, saying their cancer is due to emissions from the plant. And I want to just ask you a kind of a, a journalistic story or, or question. What does this local story, what should this local story reveal to us about the Trump administration and its policy nationally? Because so often a story can get too focused on the policy aspect of it or the local impact on uh, uh, of the story without connecting the two. So what should uh, these kind of uh, chemical, ca cancer-causing chemical emissions locally say to us about about the Trump administration policy nationally? So what we're seeing locally, and I'm glad you brought up what happened in Willowbrook, because Willowbrook, you know, good for them. They fought back and quite successfully, as you said, the, the sterogenics facility was closed, um, and, and they have been really effective with their activism. Uh, it should be noted that the cancer risk that they faced uh, was 263 in a million cancers. Again, the national average is 32. That's extremely elevated. It's not okay. Nobody should have to deal with that. But as I've noted in other stories, uh, there are folks facing far higher risk, and particularly uh, in St. John the Baptist, Louisiana, another place that I've written about, their cancer risk uh, per million, again, is 1,505. It's the very highest in the country. And when you look at what happened there, uh, especially when you compare it to what happened in Willowbrook, the result is nada, nothing. The factory that has, you know, is emitting the toxic chemicals, the cancer-causing chemicals, continues to do so. And the response has been virtually nothing. And that's because... Uh, the, you know, the local response has been quite different. And that's, uh, a, you know, that shows us what happens when you don't have real federal regulations. It's falling in many cases to states and localities. Now, in St. John the Baptist, this is a far poorer community. It's an overwhelmingly African-American community. And they don't have the same political clout. Um, and so if so, in essence, what we've had here is a, a stepping away from responsibility on the federal level, which leaves it sort of to communities to fight it out one by one. And you're not going to get an equal treatment or so far we haven't. 
You write that with the election of Donald Trump, a small and previously marginalized group of toxic apologists suddenly and unexpectedly took control over health and environmental regulations in the United States, considered too fringe, too craven, and too fact-averse for mainstream politics. This closely connected group had long been dismissed for taking the idea of environmental deregulation well past the point of absurdity. Under Trump, the EPA has begun executing some of these extremist schemes to undercut the federal government's ability to protect the public from life-threatening toxic chemicals. So is this then a break with the trajectory that the Republican Party was going in when it comes to deregulating of chemicals? Or is this just indicative of how the Republican Party would be handling these kind of environmental policies, whether Trump was in office or if it was Mike Pence or any other Republican? Um, I think that uh, let me back up a sec. I mean, so what, what I'm talking about there is something people might know of as the secret science rule. Um, and this is something, an idea that's been floating around for quite a long time. And the reason I talk about this as a group of extremists is because this idea, uh, which originally came up, I believe, first in the 90s and was uh, crafted by um, a guy who works, uh, an attorney who was working for Archer Reynolds Tobacco Company, um, is that, you know, it was sort of this crazy pipe dream at first. This was this idea that, and, and the idea basically is that of the secret science model, um, uh, although now they call it, I think, increasing transparency. But basically the idea is that any study um, that is going to inform EPA policy for all of them, they should be able to provide the raw data um, and make it completely reproducible, which on its face sounds like, oh, sure, reproducible, that sounds reasonable. But in fact, many, 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 many health studies are based on confidential health information. That's how you get it. And it's virtually impossible to uh, to reveal all the, the health data because it's confidential. That's the way it is. And so if you make that rule, you make it virtually impossible to use health studies, or at least most of them. So so originally treated as like this sort of crazy pipe dream and dismissed as the crazy pipe dream that, that never had real legs in Washington, uh, you know, with the election, this changed. And it really was, these guys were not, um, these were not mainstream Republican figures. These guys were really fringy. And um, and then all of a sudden you saw some of them, including the guy who crafted this idea, being on like the EPA transition team for Trump. And I do think that while we've seen the EPA and the federal government in general swing back and forth between, you know, you know more and less of the uh, welcoming to regulation over the years, we're seeing something different with uh, Trump. And that's this uh, complete disregard for science and a real sort of just, you know, we're going to, to, to bend, not only bend the industry, the folks who are in charge of the EPA now and, and on virtually every uh, level, all the different subdivisions are the folks who were being regulated by the EPA. You know, so chemical industry folks, coal industry folks, and and you can really see it when it comes to what this story is about chemical regulation, because you have all these people um, 
from the uh, most powerful trade group, the American Chemistry Council, who are now staffing, uh, you know, the EPA and, and sort of reshaping the regulatory process in the way they wanted it. And as you said, you know, this to a degree happens, has happened in other uh, administrations. One, I think this is worse because it is really more extreme and science averse with this administration. Two, the other thing that makes this different is the timing. So in uh, 2016, we had a revamp of the um, toxic chemicals law, the, the law that regulates chemicals, and it was 40 years since it had been updated. And this was the big hope that finally we were going to get our very, very dysfunctional uh, regulatory system to be able to rein in the chemical industry. But then, you know, and the law had all these specific things that had to be done, but all these specific things that had to be done, looking at, you know, picking which chemicals to assess and then, you know, which studies to use and all that is now falling to basically these former chemical industry folks. So it's like really poor, poor timing. Is chemical regulation then, is that a policy area, a place where Democrats and Republicans uh, greatly diverge? And if it is, what explains to you why Democrats aren't, you know, doing more of a campaign on, you know, Republicans cause cancer. We don't cause cancer. It would seem like a re if, mm -hmm. if this is a place where they are really divergent, this would be a good place, a good vulnerability. Well, the law that passed in 2016 passed with bipartisan support. And I think that a lot of the folks, the Republicans who signed it, um, probably do. I mean, there seemed to be some level of agreement that, that our regulatory system was extremely broken, right? And we've only, you know, basically there's a long history uh you know, historical explanation for this, some of which I go into in this piece, but, but, but basically the EPA was unable to ban chemicals and hadn't done so in almost, I think, 30 years, you know, because, because when they tried in the first place they, to do it with asbestos, they were sued and it was mostly struck down. So it's like basically, you know, they they were, I do think that a bipartisan group of senators was hoping to fix that. And, you know, I think um, there is variation certainly within the Republican Party on how aggressive they were, um, but, or how much change they wanted, I would say. Um, but but uh, not so much variation, I would say, or less so among Democrats. Uh, that said, the folks who have taken over here are on the very, very extreme end of the Republican Party and of just thinking on this in general. You write most of the government spending on cancer has remained focused on treating the disease rather than preventing cancer by limiting exposure to carcinogens such as pesticides and other environmental contaminants. Do we only treat cancer, only react to it because the chemical industry works hard to make certain the public does not consider the root causes of cancer? Is, is, the, is the goal of the chemical industry to continue producing cancer-causing chemicals while being able to treat the cancer that it has caused? <laughs> I mean, I think the goal of the chemi chemical industry is like the goal of any industry, is to keep making money, right? And 
part of the way to continue maximizing profits is to fend off regulation, right? To make to to make the limits as minimal as limitations on them as minimal as they can. Um, but in effect, often what that means is, you know, when they're talking about uh, about rolling back rules, some of those rules have been designed to protect our health. And some of those rules have been designed very specifically to send off cancer, to lower cancer rates and, and lower exposure to, to, to carcinogen. So when you're solely focused on, you know, let, let my company uh, be free to, to, you know, operate at maximal profit, I think part of what's happening there is you're saying, uh, and, and we can see it with ethylene oxide with other chemicals too. You know, they're saying we think this this number you guys came up with is it's a hardship on us. It's way too restrictive. But that number was calculated based on the the amount of cancer risk that scientists uh, in this agency uh, calculated over more than a decade. So. You know, it, so it becomes, it come, come, you know, it's this politicization, it's this pushback on, on science. You write Trump, who recently tried to take credit for a 2017 dip in cancer mortality rates and announced that he would be curing childhood cancer very shortly at a rally in Cincinnati last August, presumably isn't interested in actively causing disease and death, but his eagerness to please the polluting chemical and fossil fuel industries that support him comes at the expense of American lives. Is there any evidence whatsoever that there will soon be a cure for childhood cancer? Because I'm hoping that Trump was right, but I'm doubting that he was. Yeah, I haven't heard about it. Um, <laughs> stay tuned. I guess I should look at his Twitter feed. But no, I have not. Yeah, no, that's absurd, right? But, you know, it, he's not. I, I guess I put it in there because, you know, I don't think he's sitting in his office saying, let's kill people, obviously. You know, this is this is about um, this is about supporting the industries that support him, and and you know, and this more general, you know, anti-regulatory, good for business, you know, holding up that those promises that he's made over the years. We are speaking with award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner, who has returned to This Is Hell to discuss her article that she posted at The Intercept, The War on the War on Cancer. Sharon covers health and the environment for The Intercept. You can find all of our conversations with Sharon, including many that she has touched on during our conversation today, at thisishell.com. And you can follow Sharon on Twitter at FastLerner. That's L-E-R-N-E-R. -E -E you write for ethylene oxide, the chemical that Angela Ramirez was exposed to the road to deregulation passes through Texas. It was there in the summer of 2018 that regulators, led by state toxicologist Michael Honeycutt, began working with the producers of ethylene oxide on their own standard for the chemical. Honeycutt, who has overseen chemical assessment for the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality since 1996, is known for his extremely industry-friendly approach to chemicals. And now he has a very big voice within the chemical regulation policymaking of the Trump administration. 
administration, and we have seen the destruction done to Texas by the uh, chemicals in the Port Arthur area and throughout Houston in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. In fact, uh, last weekend, uh, Houston's Rothko Chapel, in collaboration with an organization called Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services, gave a bus tour of toxic sites in and around the greater Houston community from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. So this is something that everybody's very familiar with. They took a tour of the ship canal, canal and their press release reads, this frontline community is, situation, is situated next to some of the largest refineries and chemical plants in the city. Air pollution from nearby plastics producing uh, plants floats over schools, offices, and homes. Everybody knows about this. Is the Trump administration's goal, the Republican Party's goal, to make everywhere Texas environmentally? Because I think everybody knows industry has definitely messed with Texas. Right. Well, you know, in the case of ethylene oxide, I wouldn't say that they want to you know, make everywhere Texas. But what happened is that basically... The industry group, uh, a trade group dealing with ethylene oxide, it, it, the ACC, and another more specific uh, chemical organization, were uh, working on this. You know what they see as the crisis, which is, you know, that that basically people are aware of this cancer risk emanating from their chemical, right? And they met, and you know their documents are linked in this piece. But they met, and they uh, basically decided to reach out to the TCEQ, the Texas uh, Commission on Environmental Quality, to uh, seek their help uh, getting an alternative assessment. And so, even though TCEQ had assessed ethylene oxide uh, previously, they ended up meeting with these industry folks. The industry folks, according to emails that I got, um, offered to draft the assessment for Texas. Texas then came out with an assessment that looks very much like what the industry had uh, proposed in this meeting where, you know, I had some emails about it and presentations that were made at this meeting. And, and they ended up coming out with this standard that was um, much, much, much less stringent than what the EPA had come out with. It was actually, um, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong piece, 3,500 times is what I believe it was, yes, 3,500 times weaker than what the IRS, uh, sorry, what the EPA came up with, right? And so this, uh, they proposed this number, and it's not that the EPA then adopted it, which would then be for the entire country, but the EPA considered this much weaker number when it was, even though it had already set its number, right, and has decided to weaken its own number now, the number that the EPA is using for everyone, and in the document that they released when, when they uh, proposed this weaker number, they cited Texas and the uh, request by the American Chemistry Council for a revision of their numbers. So they are listening to industry and listening to base, well, and and listening to industry through the through Texas, um, much more than I think they have in previous administrations. And and they are successfully, if not lowering it three thirty five hundred times for the the number, you know, for the rest of the country, it's uh, it's still weaker than it would have been without uh, 
without this change. You're right. Honeycutt has argued that particulate air pollution, which causes lung cancer and other diseases, can help people live longer. And working with his longtime colleague and fellow toxicologist Michael Dowerson, Honeycutt loosened state protections on dozens of chemicals, rollbacks that were encouraged and welcomed by chemical manufacturers. Now, under Trump, Honeycutt's Texas agency was essentially become a shadow agency and has assumed a national role in cancer policy. Um, so how, to what degree is uh, Honeycutt then leading to uh, having chemicals being deregulated that even the chemical industry wants regulated? Is he gone even beyond what the chemical industry wants, or is he doing exactly what the chemical industry wants? Well, I mean, I think there is some diversity within the chemical industry, but I would, I mean, what are, and many, many people uh, that are reporting on on Honeycutt, you know, that's not my reporting. Lots of other people before me have reported on his bias. Um, um, there's a piece that came out a few years ago that, that looked at dozens of chemicals that he had uh, worked on with Dowerson, who's one I've reported on, too. Um, but what has happened under Trump is that you have this really in industry-friendly guy. That's how everybody knows him, but that's Texas, and it's an oil state, that's, you know, okay, that's, that's you know, he's he's sort of overseeing, and not that it's not a problem, it's a huge problem for Texas, but it was confined in, in some ways to Texas. Um, and under Trump, when, when Pruitt was in charge of the EPA, he actually named Honeycutt to a very important national role, which is the chair of the Scientific Advisory Board. Um, and there have been many uh, really bad changes to the SAB. They, they basically kicked off a bunch of independent scientists. Um, but as chair, Honeycutt has some uh, really important powers, and among, among them are um, overseeing uh, the ability to uh, weigh in on, for instance, that secret science rule I was talking about, but also he, along with other SAB members, and now there are all these industry folks from Dow, from Exxon, from the American Chemistry Council, on the Scientific uh, Advisory Board. And together, they are in the midst of revising our test, uh, cancer guidelines that are for the entire country. And, and they're revising them in ways that folks who uh, know about the environment and, and, and health find really scary. So what they're doing is they're saying it used to be that um, the sort of scientific thinking is that there's no safe level of a carcinogen. And uh, Honeycutt and his colleagues are basically trying to flip that so that there is going to be a safe level now. And, and folks are really scared about that and think that it is another step that will result in uh, greater exposure for Americans to carcinogens. I want to ask you about something that we've discussed with you on the air before. You write the people who will be affected by the weakening of ethylene oxide protections are disproportionately poor and non-white, as the EPA's own analysis shows. While the U.S. population overall is 12 percent African-American, the areas with elevated cancer risks due to ethylene oxide are 21 percent African-American, according to the document the agency released in November. Latinos are also at greater risk of exposure, making up 18% of the U.S. population and 31% of those living in areas with elevated cancer risk due to the chemical. To what extent does this explain why these emissions are 
tolerated because they're not happening to the affluent, the politically powerful? And does the chemical industry purposely target these areas of poverty and people of color? Well, I mean, it's something I've seen again and again in my reporting. Yes, these polluting facilities tend to be in poorer areas and in less, you know, areas where there are fewer white people, more brown and black people. And it just, it you know, it keeps happening. You know, I, I would say it's complicated. Are they, you know, is there a element of calculation that we can get away with this here? I suppose so. And it's also has to do with, uh, you know, the value put on real estate that is in um, more desirable areas, right? People can't, unfortunately, basically, you know, the sort of distance from pollutants comes at a cost and only some of it can, some of us can pay it. So this is just the outcome of the market then? Both. Yeah. Uh, you write, uh, those demographics aren't unusual while black and Latino people produce less pollution. People of color have a higher burden of pollution and are more likely to live near industrial facilities. And this seems like uh, not just here with uh, black and Latino people, but around the world. It seems like many people are suffering from the... Uh, horrible effects of climate change, who were not the people who caused the pollution that caused the climate change. What explains why, I know this is very obvious, but I think it's something that people should consider. <laughs> what explains why black and Latino people produce less pollution? Oh, just the, the well, the use of resources, you know, how many cars do you have, right? If, are you, you know, if you're poor, you're less likely, you're more likely to use public transportation, right? You're going to have a smaller house. You're only going to have one house. You're not going to, you know, have, you know, air conditioned a mansion, but all those kinds of things. Um, yeah. You also and certainly... Yeah, you're right about the, the climate impact as well. You also mentioned uh, Penny Dryden, who has no experience living in a pollution-free area. She feels certain the people making decisions that affect pollution levels around the country have no idea how it feels to live with polluted air. You then quote her saying, the people in D.C. don't go into communities like ours. They probably have never heard of my, com my community, Rosegate. So is this just a class issue and complete ignorance by those in upper classes and ignorance of how people live in the United States who are not rich? Is this just based on a lack of awareness of what is happening to poor people, or is it more than that? Well, I mean, there is some of that. There's, I certainly, I feel like, you know, we've heard so much about the divisions and, you know, that we're living with today, and that certainly is one of them. I mean, people just don't know what it's like to, you know, both ways, right? Um and, you know, again, it's, it's part calculation and it's part, like, ignorance and disregard. Like, just, you know, they don't understand uh, what it's like, I think. And, and I think I don't even understand what it's like till I get there. It's always shocking to me. You know, I go to these places and you can feel it sometimes. You can smell it. You can, you know, you get headaches. And, and it's really, it's a, it's a different thing. And yet people are living with this day in, day out. And, and. You know, and it's just, it's a profound difference. 
We had a guest on the show recently who said that they believe that the word inequality is just neoliberal cover for saying poverty. They don't want to point out poverty within capitalism, but they don't mind pointing out inequality. You've been on the show many times in the past to discuss reports you've done at the intercept of cancer and other disease-causing emissions in poor areas, and that those who are stricken with poverty are now more likely to be in areas where toxins are emitted, often in communities that are mostly people of color. And, and so, Sharon, when we hear all these concerns over inequality that we keep hearing about, disparity that we keep hearing about during these presidential debates, say, why don't we hear about environmental inequality? Even some conservatives are upset about economic inequality, even using those words. So why don't we hear more people talking about environmental inequality, in your opinion? Well, I mean, obviously, I think we should. Um, and I think I think that it is something that ends up um, crossing party lines when it happens, you know, when people re recognize it. For instance, with um, PFAS, you know, the chemicals I've written about, I think I've spoken about them on this show, uh, you know, in, in North Carolina, there was uh, recognition of some serious contamination down there, and both Republican senators stood up and, and started getting really upset about it because it's their people. And I think increasingly, I do think we'll see this because when it gets personal and when it goes to um, lawmakers, constituents, to enough of them, you know, it it will, um, you know, it, it will not matter what party you're in. And it'll, you know, it, it's it's um, yes, a lot of this has to do with poverty, um, but it goes beyond it too. Because, uh, and I think that we're going to, you know, inevitably hear more of it, hear how, more about it. How difficult or how easy will it be for the next administration? Let's say a Democrat is elected in 2020. How difficult will it be for the next administra administration to roll everything back? How lingering will be the problems Trump has caused in the EPA? Oh, it, it'll be incredibly difficult. Some things more than others, um, but, but, you know, for instance, the secret science stuff will take quite a while, assuming it actually it's now uh, a proposed rule, but it's moving along. Um, but that all of it will take a, a quite a long time. The stuff having to do with TOSCA, meaning the, the revamped chemicals law that I mentioned, you know, that happens every 40 years. <laughs> and, you know, it. The, the re, well, it happened. It doesn't happen every 40 years, but it was 40 years uh, it took us to redo that law. And it's uh, it's really sort of this once-in-a-generation opportunity. Uh, but another thing, so that's going to be difficult. Uh, a lot of it will be difficult. And another problem that isn't going away and has been with us um, for a long time is the chemical industry is spending on lobbying and on uh, political contributions to candidates of both parties, and, and we've really seen how influential this money can be, and this money will continue whoever is in office. So we, we did a, um, a, a good um, summary, a summary of spending and found it was uh, about $70 million in contributions over the last 12 years from the chemical industry to federal uh, um, lawmakers. And... And, and this number actually kills me. I know these are just numbers, and it's hard to, to think about what they mean. But but between 
2008 and 2019, so past 12 years, uh, the chemical industry spent $1.4 billion on lobbying. And it's, when you think about, when you look at these crazy, crazy numbers, and then you go to these communities and talk to the people who are getting the cancers and who are breathing in the, the crappy air that they, you know, know is not good for them, you, there's just this vast you know, chasm between the two, between these, you know, this incredibly powerful industry, you know, and and the people who are breathing in their impact. A lot of people always hope that liberal institutions will save us from any kind of disaster. You write environmental groups like uh, Earth Justice, the NRDC, and the Environmental Defense Fund sued the EPA, arguing that this the agency was wrong to rule out certain pathways of chemical exposures. In November, a federal appeals court agreed with them. If the ruling stands, EPA will be forced to consider exposures to chemicals through uses that have been phased out, which will affect the assessment of asbestos, for example, and PFOA, and industrial containment or contaminant found in drinking water even through even though the chemical is no longer used in the US so how likely is that can to what degree do you think we could just depend on the courts to save us from cancer well I mean what choice do we have right <laughs> it's like you know it, I thought that ruling was great and it was one of these things where you know we do have a bunch of environmental attorneys who are working really hard to to go through the right channels to fight this, um, you know. But you know, can we rely on them? You know, there's going to be there. It's it's a big mess, and you know, folks are are doing what they can to to address it. Um, and and again, that that decision uh, I think is part of it, and is and is a step in the right direction, but. But, you know, I, I do think that there will be lasting damage. I think that one of the most devastating parts of your story is you talk about a gentleman who lose, loses his son uh, from cancer. And while this kid is lying there, passed away, he asks the oncologist in floods of tear, I asked what caused this, and she just burst out. It's the environment. It's as if we all know that cancers, things like Parkinson's, are caused by the environment. We all know that. We're all very aware of it. And the disconnect between that public awareness, that public knowledge, the medical science, and what the chemical industry wants is truly very shocking and sad. Also, the fact that you point out that Brett Kavanaugh lied while he was uh, during his nomination procedure. So people should definitely read your article so they can find out how what Brett Kavanaugh lied about, because that was really great. Uh, one last question yeah. for you, Sharon, Sharon. And as we always have, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. We've been speaking with award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner, who posted The Intercept story, The War on the War on Cancer. You can hear all of our past interviews with Sharon at thisishell.com. And you you can follow her on Twitter at FastLearner, L-E-R-N-E-R. -E Earlier, we were talking about this ridiculous concept of secret science, where medical records, private medical records, are reframed as secret medical records, and therefore, we cannot trust that secret science from the conservative point of view. You write initial reports that the EPA recently released on the chemicals it's investigating, om uh, investigating omit information that the agency has in its own databases about 
where and in what quantities these chemicals are produced, which companies make them, and how they're used. As a result, most people in Freeport, this is the Dow chemical plant that you write about, about that is uh, uh, emitting ethylene oxide, and other polluted communities do not realize that the industrial facilities near them are releasing dangerous amounts of these carcinogens. Also, because they omit the critical information, the assessments themselves may not reflect the true dangers posed by these substances. We are talking about secret science. Are we secretly being poisoned with cancer-causing toxins? Is the real secret science the science of the chemical industry that we're not allowed to see? Um, so, you know, that is crazy. That data was, like, the, the reports on, on these chemicals that EPA is now assessing didn't contain this really basic information about like where they're used and in what quantities. So, and it took um, a, a consultant who's like a whiz with like navigating these websites to pull out this theoretically publicly inf uh, publicly available information, share it with us, and we compiled it for Texas. Um, but in fact, it's it's data that the EPA has at its fingertips, but didn't put it in its own report. So, I mean, I guess you could call it secret science. You can definitely uh, call it convoluted and hidden from the public. But we should be thanking the chemical industry, right, Sharon? They gave us antifreeze. They give us neoprene gloves. They give us Roundup. I mean, without the chemical industry, we wouldn't have any of these wonderful conveniences of life, and we should be thanking them, shouldn't we? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, better than I You know, uh, there are certainly things that, you know, that we I use in my everyday life we all do, you know, that we need, but it's like there is absolutely no reason that we should give huge companies a pass without actually first considering whether the things that they make and sell and expose us to are dangerous for us. Sharon, it's always a pleasure having you on the phone, on the phone with us, having you on the show with us. Thank you so much for being back on award-winning. Journalist Sharon Lerner posted the Intercept story, The War on the War on Cancer. Go read it now at theintercept.com and make sure you click on her byline so you can see all of the stories that Sharon has written at The Intercept. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. We'll get to listener feedback tomorrow. You, you, the question from hell for our listening audience for you this week is, what are you wearing to Davos this year? What are you wearing to Davos this year? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio or you can email it to either myself or Alex at Chuck at thisishell.com or Alex at thisishell.com. The person who has the best answer to this week's question gets a This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex, do you have any answers to this week's question from hell yet? Oh, yeah. What are you wearing to Davos this year? Dan O says, my fancy new Space Force camouflage suit. <laughs> Jack W. says, noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> Fabio L. says, a still suit from Dune to preserve my body moisture as I will be losing a lot of spit, spitting on rich people. <laughs> uh, Joe S. says, my birthday suit. Lisa B. says, pearls, of course. 
What are you wearing to Davos this year? Adam A says, I'm going as the ghost of Ludwig von Mises. Mises? Mises? Mises. And plan on accusing all the billionaires and WTO litigation trolls of being socialists. <laughs> Jesse W says, David Koch's skin. John M says, all the stuff I got on... You okay over there, Chuck? Uh, John M says, all the stuff I got on Amazon, and I'm going completely online. Joe G says, whatever I could find at Nordstrom's last winter ever sale. <laughs> and uh, Nick E says, Swiss Miss Coco costume, of course. I'm sorry. I cannot wait to give my response to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you wearing to Davos this year? I'm wearing an Iron Maiden. What do you think? <laughs> look nice at Davos? I think it would look really fantastic. Again, leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio. Email it to us at Chuck at This Is Hell.com or Alex at This Is Hell.com. You can give This Is Hell zero to five stars on Facebook at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. 180 people have rated This Is Hell so far, and we have a five star rating. We recently got a five star rating from Sam, who writes one of the best podcasts today, and they just recently switched to a daily format. This is hell, but I'm in heaven with all the great content. Sean also gave us five stars and he also fixed the lock to the building where I live the back door our bathroom and was the previous tenant at our office and studio spaces where spaces where we are broadcasting right now he was kind enough to give us five stars writing honest informed open-minded Nick also gave us the highest grade possible and left this comment it's relentlessly factual and engaging and wide-ranging in its scope John gave us five stars too and says best podcast ever go listen and Matt gave us the top rating writing recently discovered my favorite news podcast non-corporate funded news in-depth interviews drop CNN MSNBC Fox NPR or other mainstream media and start getting your news from listener supported podcasts Read everyone's comments at our Facebook page. Leave your rating and comment. We'll read your writing on air, online, whatever we're on right now. Go to thisishell.com. Or, uh, sorry, go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio to find out everything about all of our comments and all of our grades and all of our ratings and you can leave your comment now alex who's on tomorrow's thursday's live one hour stream beginning at 10 a.m just like today's show kari marie norgard will be on to talk about her book salmon and acorns feed our people colonialism nature and social action and our phones work now so this is fantastic inshallah <laughs> tune in to tomorrow's live streaming 10 a.m chicago time uh, show tomorrow chicago time 10 a.m at thisisl.com. Listen to the podcast shortly after. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Merritt's producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. I want to thank Alex Jerry. I want to thank uh, Jonah Tomko-Smith for producing this week. Thanks to Ronaldo, of course, for doing the moment of truth, or not the moment of truth, for Rotten History, and Sharon Lerner for being our guest on this week's show. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.